If you have any sort of leadership title within your company or association, well, guess what? You have an extra leadership position, one that isn't on a business card or the org chart. You are a message leader. Your conversations inside and outside of the business shape priorities, perceptions, and confidence. Tag, you're it. So today we'll talk with an expert on leadership communication, conflict, and coaching. She will help us identify the things you can do as a message leader to help everyone do their best work. It's Liz Kislik on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most and most effective word of mouth. That means more growth in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. On this program, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. First, the message itself, meaning which words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. Simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. My new book is available through Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, wherever fine business books are sold. For the particularly skeptical and discerning reader, you can also check out a sampler, the introduction and chapter one. You can do that for free before you buy on my website, jimcarr.com books, and that's spelled K-A-R-R-H. Today's guest knows a lot about everyday conversations inside and outside of organizations. Liz Kislik has 30 years of experience as a management consultant, executive coach, and facilitator. She has worked with clients such as American Express, Orvis, the Girl Scouts, and family-run businesses, coaching and mentoring from the C-suite to the contact center. Clients talk about her wit, wisdom, and humanity. Liz is a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Entrepreneur. Her articles have been included in Harvard Business Press Books, Guide to Motivating People, and dealing with difficult people, and in the Wall Street Journal's Morning Download. She has been interviewed by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, The Muse, European CEO Magazine, and the Financial Times Ignites. She spoke at TEDx Baylor School on why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it, and has served as an adjunct faculty at Hofstra University and New York University. But now, Liz, it's the real big time. You have made it to the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Jim. I'm so happy to be here. Great to have you here because these things about conflict and dealing with difficult people, I know there's a lot of resonance already among our listeners. So let's jump right into the fray. I've seen you described as someone who helps clients address their, quote, thorniest problems, end quote. So when I hear that, and I suspect when listeners hear that, they may have very different assumptions about what leaders consider to be their thorniest problems. I don't know if it's 
hey, sales isn't connected to fulfillment, or I've got some teams that aren't working together, whatever that might be. I'm curious, Liz, what are the typical triggers that prompt the leaders you help to start changing things? And how do they define their thorny problems? So, Jim, you actually gave two very good examples because the kinds of triggers that get people to be in touch with me tend to come from either a visible lack of results, they're frustrated that they're not seeing the kinds of changes they need, the kind of work outcomes that they need to move their businesses forward, or center around visible problems with people who have a hard time working together. So the visible manifestations could be anything from those kind of horrible meetings where people are glaring at each other and making cutting remarks to the kind of back channel, you know, the meeting before the meeting and then the meeting in the parking lot after the meeting. Sure. Because things are not going smoothly or even as concrete a kind of negative result as turnover in the staff, either among longstanding people or as often happens in particular roles where you just can't seem to hang on to people and you wonder what's going wrong. Any of those might be the kind of situation that causes somebody to reach out. It's interesting because we're talking, I think, a lot about internal initiatives, very important strategic imperatives that organizations are trying to get done. And your ability to be influential and to deal with these conflicts and deal with these problems are really fundamental. And Liz, in my experience, a lot of times you hear people say, well, we got a communication problem. It's a communication issue. And from my experience, there is no shortage of communication problems or communication challenges. <laughs> it's true, right. but it may be just part of the problem, I think. There are oftentimes things that may be simmering below the surface are kind of wrapped up as communication issues. I'm curious as to what you find, it, what the root causes tend to be and for these manifestations that pop up. Jim, you described that really well because the communication problem is sometimes like the cherry on the top of a messy Sunday. It's the tip of the iceberg. You see that people can't get along or they tell you as the leader, you know, they complain about their problems with their colleague or somebody else that they have to work with. And the thing is that both sets of stuff are going on all the time. You've got the underlying problem and you've got the communication problem that feels so present. You know, most of us are only marginally clear when we're communicating about the work that needs to get done, hard things, places where we don't agree with each other. At least some of the time, we're not good at it. So there really are always communication issues. Insight about how you communicate is something that you can convey to leaders, and many of them are willing to try to practice new ways to change the way they do it to get better results. And sometimes just improving the communication is helpful. But when there are structural impediments that prevent things from going well, of course, tempers get short and people get snippy. And then it is like an 
extra layer of communication stress because folks are triggered and emotions come into play. And then there's a sense of frustration and also a kind of sense of there's a problem and I know I'm doing everything I can. So there must be something about what somebody else is doing that's really the problem. And there's this kind of externalization. And that's why the communication gets ramped up in a negative kind of way. But you're absolutely right. It's important to look for the structures, the underlying processes and procedures, the kind of historical norms that may reinforce or actually be the source of what the difficult challenges are. And Liz, I may be leading the witness here just a little bit. So please tell me you're the expert in this more so than I, but another mantra that I hear a lot, because in just a moment, I know you've given a lot of guidance in your talks about how to identify those underlying conflicts and how do you deal with them. But I also hear this mantra on occasion that you cannot over communicate. And I guess there are different flavors of these conversations and that kind of communication. If I would think if the communication is more like, look, I know Curtis over there in that unit is a problem, but you guys just need to get along. Or, you know, we're trying to smooth something over or defer action. If that's the communication rather than dealing with, it, I guess you could over communicate if you're communicating the wrong things. But what's your view of that mantra? Okay. So this is very situational. I think the intention of the idea that you can never over-communicate, I'm assuming what it means is a kind of explanatory communication, a kind of directive communication, instructional communication about the context of what needs to happen, what we need to accomplish, how we're going to do things, why it's so important, let's stay all together team. And here's how we are moving to a brighter future. In those kinds of issues, it's actually hard to over-communicate with one caveat. You want to be giving those messages all the time. People do need to hear them, and one email or one town hall doesn't do it. But you do over-communicate even in those good kind of messages if you always say it the same way. Because if you keep giving the same message and it doesn't seem to be getting the desired result, either there's some structural thing underneath, as we talked about before, or you need to change up the message. So the idea of water on a stone, you may make a hole in the stone eventually, but if what you want to do is polish it, you have to come at it from a number of directions. So that's in the sort of broad directional communication. Your kind of example about, I think it was Curtis down the hall, saying to people, you guys just need to get along is actually not what I think of as a positive communication. What that actually is, is an expression of the leader's own frustration in the situation. And it's kind of a washing of hands. This is not my problem. You guys just need to deal. And what that's really conveying is two things. One, besides the it's not my problem. One is you need to change. This situation wouldn't be happening if you were different. That's not a helpful thing at all. That's kind of a slap in the face. And 
The other thing is, and, and you really put your finger on something that happens all the time in organizations, sending two people away to get along better than they were getting along before. I don't know if you grew up with siblings. I did. Okay. So, you know, if two kids are just sent away to figure it out together, if they are already in some kind of fight, the more powerful one is going to win. That's just how it goes. So sending two people away to work things out by themselves without adding additional skill, additional leadership in the conversation, facilitation of the issues, any kind of boundaries, whoever comes out on top keeps coming out on top. If you want a different result, you actually have to intervene and add something to the situation. Interesting. So in that situation that I just pulled out of thin air, but if there's this power relationship and you're setting up winners and losers by shutting down conversation, by shutting down communication, you can really just get more of the same problem, it sounds like, from a leader's perspective. Exactly right. And worse, because then they feel abandoned by the leader. So then all they do have is their own resources. And depending on who the people are, you get either more fight or more flight. The other point that I want to make sure that we highlight here, Liz, you made very well a moment ago, is talking about sometimes if you have this leadership message from an educational standpoint, an informational standpoint, so that everyone knows the goals, knows their roles, knows what that vision is and how we're going to get there. But if they're only saying it in one medium or one setting or in one certain way, then that probably people tune it out after a while. And knowing that other members of your audience internally like to hear things and might need to hear and see things in different ways. So I think you were talking about the importance of what we might call a multimedia strategy for your internal message. That's exactly right. And it's so important because you know, someone just say the town hall is where you are introducing a new product, a new organizational structure, whatever it is. A third of the folks attending have just come from another meeting and they're trying to get their notes together. Some people are getting ready for lunch and they're really not thinking about what you're talking about. Other people are just thinking, how does this affect me and my job? And they're only listening for the parts of your message that seem to relate to them personally. So you have to assume that the majority of what you're announcing actually isn't penetrating. And in the same way that you talk about multimedia, you also need a kind of multi-phase strategy because you've got your big reveal, the big announcement at the beginning, and then you need multiple touch points along the way. Did people hear you? What was missing? What do you need to reinforce? And then they start working on the new thing, whatever it is. And as the leader, you need to check in again to see, well, how's it going? Is it working the way we thought it would when we first started this new thing? Or are there changes and adjustments that we need to make to address what's really happening on the ground? So there's no one and done about it. It is perpetual. So you've got to socialize the message too. There's that power of social proof. It's either going to be there or not. So what I tend to find, Liz, I'm curious if, if you find the same thing as you're talking about the sequence there, is 
say there's the town hall meeting and everyone's gotten the message. Here's our new solution set. Here's our new change initiative, our acquisition, whatever. That people are going to make their own judgment at the time is, is this a fad? Is this something I just need to get through? Is this something that everybody is really on board with? And if I don't fully participate, am I going to be the odd person out? Do you find that as well? Absolutely. Part of what's so important in these large announcements, say to an entire company, is you need to get on board the influencers. And in some cases, that's an informal network of people. We've all worked places where, you know, if anybody really wants something to happen, you have to go see Sally. You know, she's (laughs) the one. And it also speaks to the importance of getting the entire managerial hierarchy on board. Because if the C-suite is completely aligned and everybody agrees this is the thing we need to do to go forward, but if there's a cadre of mid-level or lower-level managers who think, just as you said, this is a kind of flavor of the month, They always come up with new programs. If I just keep my head down and do what I always do, it'll end up all right. Those folks can stop a change initiative in its tracks. And it behooves the leadership to actually make sure on an interpersonal level that they know that all levels are really aligned and willing to go forward. In some ways, I like the good side of what I call the Sherwood Forest model. Robin Hood, you'll remember the story, you know, would speak to a very small bunch of folks who then went and talked to the people that they talked to, who then went and spread the message further. Or the equivalent of an emergency list, you know, The person who triggers the alert calls three people, and those three people call three people. You need this spreading effect as well as the one-time announcements. I remember this thing, Liz, from years back before we had text messaging and social media in quite the same way. There was a phone tree, Yep. right? So if something like that big happened, hey, Liz, you call person A, B, and C, and they'll call three people, and that's how it got out. So I think it's a similar Similar sort of arrangement you're thinking of. Let's drill a little bit deeper into that before we start talking about conflict, because I think this is important as well. So there's the how you as a message leader in your organization deal with those visible areas of conflict and dealing with that part. But there's also this how do you encourage, how do you help engineer participation influence when there are important initiatives going on. And I don't know a time these days when there's not some important change initiative that's going on. Liz, I'm going to pull a line out of context here, just as fair warning. It was in your TEDx talk and it had the line that I thought was really meaningful. If you don't have a critical mass of participation, then nothing substantial is going to happen. So if you're leading a team, if you're leading an entire organization, you've got to have those influential people. You have to have others who carry the message and carry the implementation on it. So to your point a moment ago, how do you find that leaders can best reverse engineer that sort of participation, gathering those influencers, feeding that system, developing cohorts and buddy relationships so that the change really does happen? Okay, that's so smart, Jim, because 
the use of the word buddy crystallizes it. Change really only happens at the individual level. And it's a one-to-one kind of thing. The massive change that we see through structure and through the kind of mass communication that we've just talked about in an organization, it's really important because they need to know what comes from the top and what the leadership means and wants and all of that context setting is crucial. But our habits are very hard to break. We find this, you know, on a personal basis. And so triggering behavioral change comes down to each individual being willing and in effect committing to do something differently from the way they did it before. So if you're going to get the kind of group feeling and collegial spreading of a change, one of the most productive things to do is not to aim for the biggest conceptual change possible, but to look for all the small things that can make a difference that people can tackle pretty quickly. Sometimes these are referred to as low-hanging fruit. That's because they're easy and obvious. But I really like the idea of being able to find things that people can do easily and quickly so that you can then talk about the fact that the change is already happening and show that some tangible thing that we can all see is already underway. And then you can start to build momentum. If you're going for the biggest possible thing first, often you don't see anything for six months, 12 months, 18 months. Small changes that you can accumulate and talk about when people meet together and write up in your newsletter and talk about at the lunch and learn and all the different kinds of messaging opportunities that exist in organizations. These things create a momentum of their own, almost as if you're turning the flywheel and then it goes. So it's the involvement on a person-by-person level, those influencers that we've talked about, and also a kind of accumulation of where we've taken hold already, all the small things and building them up and making them concrete and even graphic. Oh, you know what's a great thing for this kind of thing? In the department space, if it's a department initiative, or in the break room, if that's where everybody goes, some kind of chart or graphic representation on the wall in colors where people can see the building up of units of change or how many different things we've tackled. Anything that makes it visual and really present for people helps tell them this is actually real. Things are happening. And I think you, Liz, have touched on two really important things that we talk about here a great deal. One is cultivating messengers. As you said, change happens one person at a time. And there'll be a lot of people who won't think of themselves as messengers, but they are. They have a great deal of influence inside the organization. And so making sure that they know what they need to know, that their stories can be shared in their words, will give a great momentum to whatever change you're trying to accomplish. The other thing that I want to highlight there before we start talking about conflict is the issue of confidence. And as you say, having 
you think back of you know, fundraising efforts and they have like the big thermometer, right? And we're kind of going up toward yeah. our goal yeah. Yeah. or some sort of metrics that say in an authentic way, in a true way, that we're getting there. We're making progress. We're doing well. And that will get to the confidence. I think we've been around organizations where people will just say, you know, nothing ever changes around here. We have these goals, but we're just not equipped to, it'll never get done. To be able to break through that sort of a confidence barrier is really important. And you as the message leader can help feed that system in the way that progress and stories and examples are communicated. Liz, it wouldn't be a complete conversation here if we didn't get to your TEDx talk, an area that I know that you know every single day leaders and managers have to deal with, which is this issue of conflict, as we talked about at the beginning. You spoke about conflict, how it tends to show up in different organizations, and you actually had five ways of sequence of dealing with conflict. If you could walk us through that a little bit, and maybe as well, you know, there are going to be times, of, I guess some types of conflict aren't a big deal, like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like do we have donuts or bagels in the break room? But there's some that are really destructive if unaddressed. So how do you counsel leaders in terms of figuring out which are the priority areas of conflict to deal with, and then walking them through the sequence of how to actually address it. Okay. So the priority areas of conflict are tricky because as in any kind of triage situation, you may set your priorities differently depending on what's going on. So a priority conflict might be the one that's upsetting the most people. That might be one way to look at it, but it also might be the thing that's hampering the pursuit of your results. You could have a lot of people upset about something, but it feels like a small thing. And so you turn your attention to the needs of the business and what are the conflicts that are impeding you there. So it is a kind of triage thing because a leader can't work on everything every day. And that's a really tough call. The thing I would say about priority for the long-term health of the organization, though, is, and this is not something that was in the TEDx at all, but I, I think it's really useful to look for, is to look for the conflicts that do the most harm in ways that mean people can no longer trust each other or, to your earlier point, Jim, don't have confidence about working with each other. And one of the ways to think about that is, I don't know if you've heard of John Gottman, who is an authority actually in the area of marriage counseling. And that's certainly a place where you can have conflict. And he identified what he calls the four horsemen and these are the four kinds of signs that a relationship is seriously in trouble. And they are criticism, not just pick up the socks, but you're such a horror show because you always leave everything around all the time and you never do anything right. And that's a criticism as opposed to a complaint. So criticism is one, contempt or disdain, a kind of defensiveness where one party is always leaping to their own defense and as opposed to looking at what's really happening and stonewalling or withdrawal. 
If you see that these things are happening in your organization, you know you have to bring the energy of your leadership to bear on them because sooner or later, they're going to cause great harm. So those would constitute the areas where you would say, look, you see these symptoms, those are going to keep us away from our goals. Those are going to keep us away from what we're trying to do. Those are the ones we have to deal with, right? Yes, because not only will they keep us away from our goals, once you see those things, they are not going to fix themselves. It probably just the opposite, right? right? They'll, people will get more and more entrenched. And-, and more people fall in. You have more people joining up to participate in it. So that's really critical to say, oh, gosh, I better do something about this. So if the leader has now identified there's an area like, you know, Liz, this makes sense. I'm seeing these signs. We're at risk for our goals. We're at risk for flight of our best talent, whatever the case might be. You have a sequence that you recommend in terms of how to address that conflict and kind of isolate it and deal with it. Yes. Okay. So the first thing is to make sure that there is not a single person who is actually the source of the conflict because it is just part of their nature. It's a bad behavior and you need to deal with them on a coaching and counseling kind of basis. Sometimes you have one person who is just stirring the pot and you actually need to address them, whether it's through human resources, through their direct manager, figure that out. If it's a single person, you can be done by dealing with that person. But let's say it's not a single person and there really is something going on in the organization and you suspect that there may in fact be the kind of underlying structural problems that need to be addressed. So then the next thing is the investigative work. And I call that asking the right people the right questions. And the right people are not a bunch of vice presidents generally. You can, not only you can, you actually have to, of course, ask the levels of leadership, all kinds of questions. But you have to get to the root of things by understanding what one of my clients calls at the desk level, what is going on with people and how they perceive what's happening. Because very often, the vice presidents don't actually know why the work isn't getting done or why there's so much turnover in their chain. You actually have to go to the end of the chain to find people who will have some instinct about what goes wrong in their workday, what disrupts their ability to concentrate on the important issues. So you've got to go to the right folks. And then the right questions are also very close to the work. It's asking them what gets in their way. Not necessarily saying, oh, we're having this big problem with turnover. Why are people turning over? Because then you're likely to get simplistic answers. But if you really do a deep dive into what are the important parts of your job, how easy is it for you to get to them, what is it that is a barrier to your work, and you just start peeling this away, and then you accumulate the answers and you look for the patterns, then you can find the things that are most likely to be affecting a large number of people. So. Once you've got this kind of pattern identification and think that you're homing in on what the real problem is and you've got some ideas about what you're going to do about it, you have to make sure, and this is the third thing, that everyone is aligned 
around the solution. They don't all have to love it. In fact, they can disagree significantly with certain parts of it, but everybody needs to agree that this is the plan we are going forward with at this time, as opposed to the kind of stonewalling and withdrawal that says, I'm not participating in this action. And Liz, I would imagine you're in this third step about making sure everyone is aligned, that part of that is making sure everyone at least recognizes the significance of the problem. Yes, although it will be different, Jim, depending on what level they're at. True. You know, they, they'll see it from their job's perspective, mostly. So this is part of why in the second stage, you have to ask the people close to the work real questions about their work because they're only going to recognize it from that perspective. And so in your messaging about how we're going forward together, you may need to tailor that so that it speaks to the issues that are real and present at each level. So it would not be a good idea, by the way, to say, we have to take care of this because we need to get our share price up to 40 bucks a share so that my bonuses can kick in at the executive level. That's probably not the right level of message. Yes, that would be a really perfect way to create a very big mess. I agree. Yes, good illustration. So making sure that everyone is aligned in terms of what the plan is going to be, what would be the next step in the sequence? Here? Okay. So then, and you alluded to this earlier, it's finding the influencers and the allies for the new direction at every level. And you do that similarly to the way we talked about everybody being aligned you find the people for whom the new message has resonance. Who are the people who agree, who seem optimistic, who want to go forward? And who are those influencers like Sally, where you need to find some way to persuade her that there is value for her, benefit for her, and that it's going to be safe for her to go forward? Without having these allies, you don't get to that person-to-person -person connection that we talked about before, because the CEO is not going to be talking directly one-on-one -on -one to the warehouse workers in all likelihood. So this is the way you create the netting through the organization to make sure that everybody's moving forward in concert. So having then found those allies, those messengers and influencers to help you spread that message to help make the change. If you get to the fifth step here, what does that look like in terms of making change stick? So earlier, I think I mentioned that we're all stuck in our habits. So it's really useful to teach new habits to give people concrete ways of thinking about some of the changes that they have to make. And Many of these new habits really are at the level of communication and messaging and how we talk with each other. And one of the ones, I'll just give you one as an example, that I like the best is what I call playing the elephant card. And this is a tool for letting everybody bring up the subject they're afraid to bring up, the thing they think they're not allowed to talk about, the thing everybody knows but doesn't want to say. Uh, the elephant in the exactly. room. Exactly. And I actually, when I do facilitations, bring a deck of cards from an old kid's game that has elephants on them, and I distribute them. And if there's an issue that people know but nobody's willing to say, 
you're looking for some brave person to actually turn over an elephant card and then everybody knows, oh, now we have to talk about this. Hmm. Interesting. And if I may, Liz, there's one other piece here that I think in terms of taking these changes and making them, if not permanent, at least durable for some period of time within the organization. And that really gets to the area of coaching and influence. And I think a lot about those, you were talking earlier about working at desk level, that oftentimes those frontline managers, those middle managers really hold the key to change initiatives. And so the habits oftentimes need to be at that level. I find a lot of people who are in that role, they have direct reports. Maybe they've never been coached that way. They may lack confidence. Not only, they might say, gosh, Liz, I I don't know what to do. How am I supposed to tell somebody else in terms of what they should be doing in just those regular meetings, those regular reviews and hallway conversations? So how do you help organizations and what should they be looking for in terms of the coaching and influence skills of those frontline managers? You have really highlighted such a crucial issue, Jim, because this is where an initiative can get stopped in its tracks. So if you have a whole cadre of managers who don't have experience in this regard or who feel anxious about it, which is so legitimate, it's really hard, you can't do this on the fly. This is where you actually have to invest in the organization because you need to sit them down as a group to the point before about the multimedia campaign for message change. You need to do this in all kinds of ways. You need to sit them down in a group and really provide them with training about how to coach so that they have a conceptual underpinning first, because coaching is not just telling people what to do. It's actually helping them change their behavior. And it's very different from our day-to-day kind of telling. So getting them to understand that coaching is actually a methodology and that there are steps and that they can learn the steps and they can be safe to apply it in a kind of classroom setting, could be video classes if necessary, but also where they're doing it as a group so they can turn to each other for support is very important. And I'm just going to give you a couple of top line aspects that are so important. One of the things that can help build confidence is if they understand that the first stage of coaching has nothing to do with what they say to anybody. It's about what they observe. And almost everybody will have confidence in their ability to observe. And you want to train them in some new techniques and build on what they already feel strong about so that they start to actually note both visually or orally, and also by writing it down, capturing it in some way, the behaviors that they see in their team, the language their team uses, the way the team behaves with each other in a very concrete way, because it's those observations that become the grist of what I call neutral behavioral descriptions, so that you In the second kind of stage that you would teach about, you never say, oh, Steve, you behaved so terribly to Patty. Instead, you would say, Steve, I noticed that when you said these three things, 
and you actually say what the three things were, Patty reacted in this way and you describe Patty's behavior. She rolled back from the conference table in her chair. She crossed her arms and she shook her head. So Steve, that's how you know she wasn't responding the way you had hoped. So the observation first and then being able to make these neutral behavioral descriptions, those are critical parts of coaching and almost every manager can learn how to do them. Bring out your inner journalist, your, your right. inner uh, crime scene investigator. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that it's something that they can do within themselves, as opposed to having to do to somebody else, can be quite comforting as the first stage of development. That's a great point. Overall, Liz, this has really been fascinating discussion. And I'm just imagining, I, I know from myself and thinking through some different client situations, and I'm imagining our listeners are hearing all of these descriptions and concepts and probably applying names, faces, and situations right there. These are things that, that happen every single day that we have to deal with and choose to deal with and deal with in the right sort of way. So I really appreciate you coming in. A lot of our messaging and developing messengers and setting these habits, we think about the external message, but also inside, just being able to be influential for important work to get done. I think it's uh, a lot of the same skills and a lot of the same concepts apply just in spades. So uh, this is wonderful. Liz, where can people learn more about you, find out what you're doing and get more of your insights along the way? Oh, thank you, Jim. So of course they can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Liz Kislick is the handle for everything. And also at my website, which is LizKislick.com. And in fact, if they go there, I have a free guide and checklist to help people identify and resolve interpersonal conflicts at work. And that will also get them access to either my weekly blogs or my monthly newsletter, where there are lots of similar kinds of advice. Excellent. And of course, we'll have that in our show description. Liz, your last name, K-I-S-L-I-K. It is nearly as challenging as Carr, K-A-R-R-H. But so we will make it really easy for everyone. I very much appreciate you joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. You are a great interviewer, Jim. I really enjoyed it. Well, you keep saying that, you'll get invited back. So thank you. Thank you again for being here, Liz. Okay, it's a deal. <laughs> Thanks so much. I am very pleased that you've joined the podcast, whether you're a returning message manager, or maybe this is your first time in. We continue to build momentum, and that's because so many of you have been recommending us to friends and colleagues and leaving those five-star ratings. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a few seconds, tap subscribe, and offer your five-star rating and review that helps the robots figure out how to let other professionals know about this podcast so they can benefit as well. There's another free business messaging resource available to you, one you can read, the Message Manager Memo. It comes to your email inbox each week, a brief read with something you can put to work right away. You can sign up at the website, jimcarr.com, K-A-R-R-H. And while you're there, you probably know of a professional association or a company full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and to grow the business. You're probably part of more than one yourself. 
Well, on my website, you'll see a speaking page as well as a related page just for event professionals, the hardworking and often stressed out colleagues who need to find speakers and other ideas for making in-person events memorable and valuable. I list several keynote and session topics. They're all based upon practical learnings from my new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. All of my topics are tailored to the themes of your meeting and the needs of your participants. My programs are designed to not only be engaging in the moment, but also to provide the basis for business growth for months and sometimes even years afterward. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com and set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My direct number is also on the website. Let's talk. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.